Welcome to Uncomfortable Is Okay, where we explore the science, the stories, and the strategies of getting out of your comfort zone, navigating challenge, and doing the hard things that make life worth living. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. Uncomfortable Is Okay is brought to you by Health Mentors. Health Mentors is a performance well-being company that helps change makers dial in their health and improve their performance in the middle of a chaotic world. We offer one-on-one health mentoring services, as well as a range of workshops and workplace solutions, all the way up to supporting organizations with their well-being strategy. You can find out more at healthmentors.nz or get in contact with Chris at healthmentors.nz. Welcome to the Uncomfortable is OK podcast. Today, I am joined by Portia Bing. Portia is a counter-fraud advisor at the Serious Fraud Office here in New Zealand, and she is also an international track and field athlete who has recently competed in the World Athletics World Athletics Tournament. What do you call it? World Athletics Meet Track Championships. And, championships. Yeah, that's that's a good one. And was the first Kiwi hurdler to make a semi-final there since I think it was 1968, if I did my research correctly, and has also just uh, just got back from the Commonwealth Games as well. Portia, welcome to the show. It's so nice to join, have you here today. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. I always like to just start things off by asking people, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Auckland, just outside of Auckland, before the super city. So, yeah, grew up in Auckland, family's from Auckland, so I want to say not super exciting. I think there's lots of people, when you, especially when you're on teams, right? So you go away, we're spending like three months in confined areas, traveling and sharing rooms with all these other athletes. And everyone always has their stories of what small towns are from and what farming families are from and you know, long lines of heritage and stuff like that. But yeah, for me, I yeah just grew up in Auckland. I went to primary school in West Auckland and then moved into the big smoke, into the city for high school. So Nice. Is that a bit of a conversation stopper with other athletes when they're like, where are you from? And you're like, Auckland. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I remind most of them that they also moved to Auckland and most of them don't move out of Auckland. So, <laughs> yeah. But they're from rural New Zealand. Yeah. I was say they, like to, they like to claim they're from rural New Zealand, but they often just visit at our Christmas time, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Portia, I also like to ask people, where, like, is there anything that you remember from your early years that has kind of shaped the path that you're on today? This is actually really funny. So I was watching Disney Plus last night and I've been away for a long time. So I've really, like, I've maxed it out, right? And I'm this kind of person that really enjoys, I don't actually enjoy watching TV. So this is something that people will find is just crazy. I know my partner just, he loses his mind over it. When I get on a plane, I don't even turn the TV on. So I don't watch any movies. So I sit on like a 22 hour flight and just don't watch anything. So I'm kind of like a, when I watch TV, I will watch things in a background. And something came up on my suggested and it was a TV show that I used to watch when I was a kid and it was called Kim Possible. I don't know if you know what that is, but basically... It's from the early, I think it's from the 2000s and she's a spy and she has a psych, a male sidekick and some IT guy and she goes to high school and also goes and saves the world. And it was quite funny because I started to think about that. Well, I used to watch it all the time. I used to just religiously straight after school go and watch it. And then I started to think about like how much watching something like that or really enjoying something like that must have just kind of shaped what I did as a kid, the boundaries. And I know it sounds crazy, but you hear all these people talking about things about TV with kids and what you're exposed to and all these types of things. But yeah, it used to be something that I used to watch all the time. And I was trying to figure out, I was like, I wonder, I don't know if there is, there might be absolutely no correlation between watching that as a kid and just being like, oh, I can do anything. Cool. I'm going to go do that. Like if there was any correlation there. So that was one kind of interesting thing that literally happened to me yesterday and I was trying to figure out, I'm like, there's going to be something really cool that's happened here, but I'm not a psychologist, so I have no idea. Um, 
That's fascinating, the connection that you made, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was like, this, like, and you've got to remember, this is kind of like before it's time, right? So I think a lot of the time now I look at things, we look at things a lot differently. So we just expect there to be female leads in, in shows and in kids' shows, and we just expect equality, right? It's just what it is. But I was like, you got to remember something from like the early 2000s, like that was very forward thinking for its time, I would say, to have a TV show based around a female lead who was, yeah, basically a spy. So, yeah, so things like that. But then I guess one of the biggest things that really stands out um, for, for me childhood-wise would be playing sports with my brothers. So I'm one of six, but my, I've got older brothers. And for a long time, my parents were like, you either join in or you watch, but you've got to come anyway, which actually led me to playing the most bizarre sports. Like I remember I played rugby league and I played one game. And the reason I stopped playing was because I realized that 10-year-old boys have no concept that you shouldn't tackle a girl that hard or, you know, there was no, there was, there was yeah, and, and yeah, I, it was a very unusual experience. I remember specifically standing on the field thinking, I don't know how to play, but I can catch a ball and I can run, so it'll be fine. And it didn't really occur to me until I started playing and watching my brothers play that we were going to get tackled. And then it was at that point that every other week I decided that I wasn't going to be available. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, but yeah, so I think that was kind of, yeah, a couple. Yeah. So you were, you were very into kind of sports and athletics growing up. I was like largely influenced by what, like I said, my family are very outdoorsy, very, very extremely busy people. And my mum used to just have a saying that it was easier to keep kids busy because she's like, you know, instead of dealing with trouble, just keep them busy, give them a ball. So like I literally played everything. I played basketball. Like I said, I tried rugby league once. I played cricket. I did athletics. I played netball. I played football for a while. <laughs> so I've literally done everything. I tried out for the triathlon team. They didn't accept me. I used to swim. So yeah, I, I've done literally everything. Nice. I... I also played a lot of sports growing up. I got roped into playing for the squash team at one point. Some of my mates like were really, really good at squash and they're like, oh, we've almost got enough for two teams. So can you come and play so we don't have to share games with all of the other guys? I think they like there's four people on a squash team and they had seven. And they're yeah. like, if we don't have another team, then everyone just needs to rotate. So I just lost every game that season to try yeah. and help my mates out playing for the, the second team, playing like at the fourth ranked player and just still got smoked every game yeah. until the last game of the season. And I, and I won and I was so stoked. <laughs> I was still rubbish at squash. Trying to keep up with your brothers and and especially older brothers in that sense. Did you, were you quite a competitive kid? as well yeah i i guess i would have been it's really weird because everyone always talks about yeah i'm real really competitive but i just have no i can never think of anything yeah that's that, just how you are right? yeah i never think about things like oh yes i'm really competitive and i'm a great competitor and like that doesn't it's not it's kind of not a driving force for mm. me it's not really a characteristic thing that i'm like yep that's definitely what I am. It's not something I'm like, oh yeah, I pride myself on being super competitive, which is like for a lot of athletes, that's almost like their first trade, right? Is their, how competitive they are. I would say that I'm probably better at picking up skills. So I'm like a really fast learner, which made it a lot easier. So I'm a massive trial and error person. I think it's like throughout my whole athletic career, that's all it's been. It's just been trial and error and it drives coaches mental, right? They're like, if only you did this or you listened to this or you did this, but I'm kind of like process driven, but also like, yeah, I know there is a good process out there, but can you make that better? And I think it's the same thing. Like when I was younger, when I was kind of competing with my brothers or doing sports with them a lot of the time, I was looking at that. Okay. They were extremely talented and my brothers were very, very talented, but then it was like looking at, okay, what do I have that they don't have? Where are their gaps? And one of the things was that, 
it was like that consistency and discipline of doing something over and over and over and over again. And I think I, that was one thing that I picked up really quickly is that my brothers would switch sports really quickly. They would be, they were super energetic, right? Like you've got, they would be doing rugby, then they'd be doing athletics and they'd be doing cricket, but they'd kind of be not necessarily developing the skills in one certain area, which I kind of feel like if I could work on the smaller refined skills, then I'd be slowly be able to kind of close the gap. I never did close the gap, let's be honest, but in my mind, I was getting closer. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting process to, to kind of think about and, and look at it from as well. And I guess like when you are kind of, looking for the gaps when you're looking for those points where maybe you think okay if I could work on that that would leverage my skill set so I can accelerate a little bit faster in this area like do you have a process that you use for that or was that something that was always quite intuitive for you it's definitely something that's quite intuitive I do it like all the time I've done it literally throughout my whole like athletic career even for the even to the point where I changed events so it's like you know, I started off doing one thing. I went to a World Juniors. I was doing heptathlon. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, I was running 400s and I was in a 4 by 4 relay. Then all of a sudden, I was back at a World Championships two years later doing heptathlon again. And then when I went from heptathlon, I went to four hurdles. And everyone was like, it didn't really... They're like, oh, where did the 400 hurdles come from? There were seven events to pick. But it was just, again, it was just looking at kind of what skill sets I had, where there was gaps in the market. So where was the easiest progress to be made is kind of how I like to look at things. I'm the lazy athlete. When you thought easiest progress, I'd say many people would argue that the 400 hurdles is one of the more challenging events. I used to run 400 at high school. Predominantly, well, I was never fast enough for the 100, but also because it was way harder than the 200. So I was like, I could probably do better in this because it's just harder. So when you th- when you're thinking about okay, the easy improvements is that from a I've got the most I think I've got the most capacity here to improve myself, or I or kind of I can be more competitive amongst this field, or a bit of both. Definitely a bit of both. And I think it's a misconception to think it's harder, right? Because the thing that you learn really quickly is like everyone tries hard, so everyone's yeah. training just as hard as everyone else, regardless of there is. I don't know. Everyone likes to think that their event's harder. So the 800s are harder. So the 400 or the four hurdles, but I'm like running 200 meters is just as hard as running a 400. You've got to put in the same kind of work, the same kind of effort. Yes. You tap into different systems. You might get left at the one and not the other, but I'm like, they're just variations of the same amount of like hard in my, in my mind. But yeah, I think in terms of trying to think about where those gaps and stuff of the market are, as well, it's like <laughs> there's, there was this point in time, I remember when I was going to change and everyone was like, run 800s. Like you run such good 800s as a heptathlete already and that's after doing six events. At the time, I'd done some pacemaking for like Nikki Hamlin and people had made the Olympic team and they're like, you pacemate for them. Like, you know, I run do 800s, it's just a little bit more mileage. But then it was like, it never made sense to me because there were already three girls ahead of me three girls that were already very close to those standards so even if I made it even if I made that standard there'd be a chance that I wouldn't be selected so it was kind of like power of elimination from from my perspective it was like if I was going to put in a small not a large amount of time because let's be honest like a lot of athletes put a huge amounts of time into getting better to get somewhere yeah I was like well I'm definitely not putting in the same amount of work as a lot of those athletes are running 800s. They've already got X amount of years experience ahead of me and this will be their second, you know, second cycle around trying to get into a com games or world champs or something as well. So they already had quite a lot of experience ahead of me. So I was able to eliminate that pretty quickly that I was like, okay, right now I'm not going to run 800s. And yeah, and there was like no one running four hurdles at the time and I had an injury so I had to learn to hurdle the other leg for heptathlon I had an Achilles injury so I had to switch switch legs and yeah so I was like oh it'll be fine there were points when I started doing four hurdles as well where I was like okay cool 
I think I can improve by this much. But then I realized that technically I had to get better. So I did have to go backwards. But yeah, like that's kind of how I pick <laughs> pick my events and look for like gaps in the market. And that's why I say it's more intuitive because it just, it honestly, like it makes so much sense to me to be like, okay, yes, some people might think four hurdles are a lot more painful than running 200s. But I'm also like, okay, cool. With a very little comparative effort I can be here in the world whereas if I try to do 100 that's fine I could get a lot faster I could be so much better 100 but I'm like it's not gonna improve my performance it's not gonna improve my ranking worldwide it's not gonna kind of improve my life overall it's not gonna have any impact on that it'll just be you know I'll always stay ranked in the 70s or the 100s or whatever it would be which in the four hurdles I was like okay I'm already ranked in the 20s, so then I can move around up from there. And like, yeah, it's more like that international stage was a lot more obtainable. How comfortable were you going backwards at the start for a little bit when you realized that you needed to change the technique up? So at the start, it was fine. I mean, starting new things, I just, I have like zero problems with starting new things. I always think about... One of the reasons I find uh, one of the things about staying in one event is like if I'm doing the same thing, for, the thing that I struggle with is doing the same thing for a long period of time and feeling like you're stagnant. So, a lot of athletes, there was a long jumper from Australia and she's the same age as me and she recently got a PB and it's been six years, six years since she improved. And I was just like, you know, I think about things, I'm like, you know, there's a whole degree and a master's degree and <laughs> like there's so much that have been achieved in that time and I was just like it's just it feels like such a stagnant period if you don't keep moving forward but in order to keep moving forward all the time you actually do have to jump ship be comfortable being yeah be comfortable being just out of your lane all the time the hardest thing about going backwards was I actually went backwards in 2020 so I had a really good year so I changed it for hurdles in about 2018 and then I qualified for world champs in 2019 and then I got DQ'd technical DQ but I literally hit this point where I couldn't go any faster because technically I was so bad I was I plateaued so I had to go backwards to relearn to hurdle to do all these things but I hadn't because I got DQ'd I hadn't qualified for the Olympics so in an Olympic year, I had to go backwards and I'd already kind of proven where my top 16 capabilities were, but I knew that that season, I wasn't going to be able to show that season because I'd gone backwards. So on paper, I looked worse than I was the season before, but I was actually getting better. I would say that was probably one of the hardest things because you're standing in front of a panel of selectors trying to justify that they should select you for an event that where you're already ranked you know you're ranked within the quota never fell out of the quota and if it wasn't delayed you would have you know made it I had kind of proven the top 16 world champs the technical DQ was this and this and this is how we'd improved it I think that was one of the hardest points of kind of actually realizing you had to go backwards and choosing a year to go backwards that should have been kind of quite an important year right because no one wants to go into an Olympic year going, okay, cool. It's all right, guys. I'm going to go backwards. So I'm going to get really shit this year. But you wait, I'll come back and be better. Like, <laughs> and I was like, it doesn't, the times never reflected that. And then we had COVID too. And I remember saying to them, like, and I remember having this conversation with them. And they're like, oh, yeah, but COVID didn't affect athletics. You had all this, you know, you've had a long period of time to do this qualification because it's been open for this long. But I remember thinking, no, I haven't because I haven't been able to travel overseas. So, uh, you know, there's no competition and it's all these kind of factors. And I think for me that was probably one of the first times that I had not been, yeah, one of the hardest points in terms of, yeah, having to actually fail at something. And then the hardest thing was to to not, kind of not pivot, I'd say, because I was going to say I'm not a, I don't want to say I go, oh, I've given up on it. But I was like, it makes sense to pivot at that point, right? You go, and that's what, I guess that's kind of my mindset about things. So, okay, 
I've done that. That did not work. It would be really stupid to waste a whole year and to stick at the same thing. Whereas like you could just pivot. And I was like, there is other events, there's other ways, there's other means, there are other things happening in life. I was qu- quite fortunate because at a point where I would have probably pivoted from four hurdles, I started working in the serious fraud office as well. So I had different challenges, I guess, in my life that kind of helped me feel like I was really moving forward. Working at the serious fraud office was a huge leap in terms of my career. It's, you know, it's pretty much in terms of financial crime. It's exactly where everyone wants to be. So I'd kind of hit like the international stage basically of my career, which helped me kind of put that first, which enabled me to put the hurdles on the back burner kind of in 2021, but like just keep ticking. It was something that I ended up using as as a reason to get out of the office rather than sit at the front of my mind being like, this is what I'm doing right now, if that makes sense. Yeah. So kind of having the having the growth in the at the serious fraud office kind of almost offset the the kind of stagnation with uh, with the athletics. But obviously that's still a really challenging decision to to make at that point in time. Were there other things other than like the the career? progression that you were having at that time that helped you to process that and helped you to stick with the hurdles over that period of time I do remember like there were like decisions that that you made or things that were helpful to for you to get kind of over that period yeah so I didn't actually hurdle at all for probably six months or more so I just said "Ah, let's just run as fast as I can Right, so and I said that to my coach as well. I said to him, I was like, look, I don't want to hurdle because I, it was such a hard, it was such a hard process, especially because of the way the selection stuff went. It was literally down to the wire type thing, and it'd been such a long. They'd been so kind of they'd been so much caught up in it as well that I got to this point. Where I was like, Ugh, I don't want to have these conversations with people anymore because otherwise you're going to hate the sport. And I was like, I don't hate the sports. I hate the politics, right? So it's it's like if you, so that's why I actually decided to, I could recognize that, that I was saying to hate the sport when I didn't hate the sport, I hated the politics. That's why I stopped hurdling for probably six months or more. Like I didn't, I hurdle, I started hurdling during the domestic season and I think I did like one or two hurdles before the national championships. And last year, domestically, I did four hurdle races. And I probably did three hurdle sessions, which is not a lot for someone who hurdles. So I think that was the way that it was, for me, it was like not pivot because I was never going to move away from hurdles, but I needed to move away from, I guess, all the things that I hated about that was surrounding that specific event right now. I needed to find other areas, like kind of almost pivot, but internally. So that was like, okay, cool. Don't focus on the hurdles because uh, there's too much connection at the moment with the the negative things surrounding that. So let's focus on getting faster and doing the sprints. And there's a really good team. Like I have a really good training group and they're all sprinters. So it changed the environment. I was, I was progressing, so I was getting so much faster. And all those things were going really well. So it worked really well. So then when I stepped back into hurdles, I was already faster. So I was kind of already ahead of where I would have been if I was just hurdling anyway. So yeah, it kind of worked out. Nice. I love the the concept that you kind of brought up there, the internal pivot. Like yeah. you may think of pivoting, like pivoting has been, has just been an overused word for the last, what, two and a bit years since since COVID started. We always think about it externally let's change the direction, let's change the outcome. Whereas actually what you've, the way that you have applied it there is that like the, the direction that you're going is still the same, but it's the, it's that internal pivot or that internal shift or to kind of change that, that mindset direction for a little while, which is really, really cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm also interested like in your, with your relationship with your coach as well. 
because it, like as you've said you've you've had coaches in the past who have said hey you should just do do it this way and, and kind of keep going this way obviously you have a really good relationship with your with your current coach in regards to being able to do things slightly differently and i'm i just kind of wondering like how you guys work together to think about areas for improvement and and ways to improve. So the first thing I will say is I've had lots of coaches in the past. So I've had my very first coach was Russ Hoggard and he was the first person that I always say it's like to find a coach that loves you, keeps you in the sport, right? And he was that person for me. So he really introduced me to the sport and he loves me as an athlete. So he loved everything about athletics. So he, you know, he programmed me and I was excited about it. And he loved all his athletes in this group. He was just, he's an old school coach that just loved athletes, loved athletics. It was just out there, you know, in the Waitakere's and it's pouring with rain in the winter. And that was, he was my first coach and it was really, really hard for me to ever replicate that, right? So I kind of, we got to the point where you get to the point with every coach where you kind of outgrow the coach. And I really struggled to replace that kind of side of it. So I had to look for other things. So I had coaches overseas. I've had several coaches overseas. But then with my current coach, James Mortimer, I think the biggest thing is that he's an amazing teacher. And it was something that I didn't realize that I desperately needed until I started working with him, right? So it's like you're trying to fill this gap that you don't know what it is. And that's the hardest thing when you change coaches is that you don't know what you need, but you know what you don't need. And it's really hard to go around and be like, I don't need you because I don't need that. But, and they're like, okay, what do you need? And you're like, oh, I don't know. But our, I think for me, the biggest thing is that he, yeah, he's an amazing teacher. He knows how to, he knows, I guess, how to, how to teach me. Right. So I was like, it's a quite hard thing is that I don't like, it's hard to teach athletes that have multiple coaches and have their own ideas and new habits. It's really hard to teach them new things, which he, the way that he breaks it, he broke things down, made a lot of sense. And the amount of detail he puts into things is really, really well done. So we talk about like your cruising speed, which is, you know, talks about if you uplift your average speed in which you can run a hundred and then you can hold that becomes your cruising speed. So if you're top speed is like if your top speed is 11.4 well then obviously you can probably cruise at 11.8 so when you run 11.8 over 100 meters and you're rolling you know down the back straight on four hurdles and you're running over hurdles you can probably run 12 seconds so you're doing 12 second hundreds and it's just the way that he broke things down and explained them and conceptualized them worked really really well for me yeah so it's like that's what one of the I'd say that's probably one of the biggest things that we kind of figured out worked well for us really, really early on. I think the other thing is as well is that he lets me bring what I know as well, but not just in relation to track. Actually, 90% of the time, the stuff that I'm talking to him about isn't related to track. And, you know, we use each other as, you know, he, it's anything from, you know, when the new policies come out and like talking about those and, how do we apply these policies or how do we understand these selections or should we be doing this with this athlete or should this person be eligible for this kind of funding or these types of things? Like we kind of professionally use each other really well. And I think it's quite a big thing for me to not have to go to the track and be like, oh, okay, got my track face on today. Like we're not going to talk anything else. Like, yeah, it was a big game change for me because there's a lot of situations where the athlete coach situation becomes like teacher student. Mm. And I'm just like, anyone who knows me, was just like, I was just always the worst student, right? I was just not a good student. And it's like, I like to have value back. So it's like, I don't like to just take value. And one of the things is like, the more you give, the more you get back. And that's the relationship that I've been able to have with my current coach, which is, been such a game changer for me to be like able to yeah able to give some and get some back as well rather than it kind of just be this one way okay this is what we're doing yeah I think that's largely though as well it comes down to that idea of when 
the sports more for, for me the sports is more than just than just going out and running right it's like that sense of community it's the kind of sense of charity of like I want to give back right so I want to help other athletes because it excites me that these younger athletes coming through in our group and you know that I have so much I can offer them and he totally enables that like you know he he's like yep I want you to be able to help these athletes out let's help them together yeah so it's been quite a big thing it's been it's just it's a massive dynamic change like I said from most normal coaching situations where I've had where it's just been like this is the coach he's telling you what to do this is what's happening so yeah yeah, that's awesome. And I think it's kind of, it parallels with uh, often sort of professional relationships as well. And just having the ability to recognize that everyone brings their own expertise to a situation as well. And being open to, even if there's kind of, I guess you'd maybe call it as like a power imbalance with like a mentor mentee or kind of manager employee or coach athlete that there is that sort of patriarchal power dynamic that's going on there. But I think when that person with that sits kind of, I guess, in air quotes, in that higher power position recognizes that actually they're not the, they're not the seer, they're not the oracle. They have a whole lot of experience and expertise, but the person that they're working with also has massive amounts of expertise in complementary areas, then actually relationships really really start to thrive and you start to be able to do some really cool stuff together yeah 100 i think that's the biggest thing right because it's like it's not even the stuff that we're doing like just with me as an athlete right it's the stuff that we're that we can work on together with other athletes it's the advice that i can provide that he doesn't know exists or vice versa it's just yeah it creates like we create a better management team for the wider team as well and and it's like a mess it's like I said it's been a massive game changer in terms of just staying in the sport right because now the sport is so much more than just turning up going to do my training and trying to make a world champs and trying to make a semi-final because it's now also about okay cool that's what I'm doing but what we are doing as a team is that we're bringing new athletes we're trying we're using our multiple skills to ensure that we actually have more athletes making world chance we have more athletes making world juniors and and we've been like extremely extremely successful like this year we had three people from our training group at world champs so three sprinters at a world like three female sprinters at a world champs is just not something that's ever happened and it's but there's a combination of things that when you get people together that are you know bringing different skills like you said it's just these different skill sets it's not just a coach just trying to stand there and tell athletes run faster do the students reps it's the strategy we're thinking around that it's the you know how you're targeting different events and yeah just all that kind of stuff so yeah yeah and I know that you're quite into like this, the sporting governance as well. Like, is that an area that potentially you're thinking that you'd love to move towards more as well? I love and hate it, right? <laughs> I love it because I absolutely just love how gray it is. It's just gray, right? And I was like, it's this massive gray area. And understanding that like sports comes from a non-professional background, right? So a lot of, a lot of people come from sporting backgrounds and go straight from sport into sports governance or sporting administrative roles and stuff like that and I think that that the thing the reason that it excites me is because I guess I come from a different background and you come from a perspective where something that's just common sense to me and you look at it in the sports world and they don't have those systems or those processes like and doing those things and you just think there's so much like room for potential and growth and like that you can make fast progress throughout the sporting world and stuff. So yeah, I think it's it's something that definitely interests me. Whether or not I'd ever get into it would be another thing because yeah, it's gotta be you gotta be there's a time in your life where you want those kind of politics, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that that's that's really interesting as well. And I think like I, I guess it's similar to a lot of industries too, that often uh, the industry is driven by people within the industry and they 
are really great and they're really passionate, but they see things one way. And obviously you have a, you've got a diversity of athletic talent, but you also have a diversity of skill set in terms of the way that you think about things and the perspectives that you look at problems with as well from, from your work at the serious fraud office. I'm sure there's a heap of stuff there that you can see and you're like, oh, if this was applied to this athletic situation, this might go much more smoothly. And potentially even vice versa, kind of the athletic stuff, bringing it back into the work side of things too. Like, do you find yourself kind of ideas firing up that way? Yeah, definitely. I always talk about, you know, one of the biggest things is when, this is one of the things I learned from my coach is applying the things that you've got at work into your training. So it's that idea of understanding you know, what your strategy is, looking at the different patterns and all those types of things and thinking about those things when you're planning, when you're running, when you're trying to improve on things. Like I definitely bring now a lot more of that, a lot of my natural kind of working skills into my athletics. And I do think that there's so much room for more diversity in, in sports. Like sports people need to leave sport because sports people don't you you don't really know what you don't know right and if you don't leave sport then you don't know anything but sport and I think there's always this tendency to think oh that's going wrong or that's bad but it's like yes they're right that's wrong or that's bad or that shouldn't be happening but it's one thing to say it's wrong but then it's like why you know it's like understanding that why is it wrong okay you can tear apart systems and tell us how bad they are but tell me how you can do it better and those are the, that's kind of from, that's kind of things that a lot of sports is missing, right? We always talk about how bad it is or, you know, how this person doesn't get selected for this or whatever, or how bad that selection policy is and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, they're terrible. Like they are terribly written documents, but how are you going to improve that? Because sometimes, and I think there's something you learn in government very quickly, as everyone goes, oh, that's such a crap system. And it is a really crappy system. I mean, COVID lockdowns are a classic, right? But it's like, tell me how do you do something? How do you do it better? Sometimes there isn't a better way or sometimes you've got to actually work through that really bad process to find a better one. And it's really easy to talk about and kind of criticize how bad it is. And that's why I also say, yeah, again, that's why I think athletes should leave sport and then come back and look at it with fresh eyes, yeah. And I think there's a lot for, I think a lot of employees now as well, like they look at athletes and realize how much value they do bring to an organization. I know in my office, they look definitely for people who have other skills other than being like, cool, I've got my law degree. It's like, yeah, but everyone's got their law degree. What else do you do? Like what other perspective do you bring? And that's the same, that reverse idea of what I was talking about, athletes leaving athletes leaving sport and then coming back it's like employees leaving you know lawyers leaving law and coming back with new ideas new things from different ways and that's kind of the two ways in my mind at work yeah yeah and I, I just kind of think about it when I was working as a physiotherapist as well I guess the the biggest leaps that I, I that I feel that I made within my practice were not things that I learned within the profession. They were things that I did a management degree as well. And just being able to look at things from a completely different perspective, like management, as you were saying before, it's all gray. Like there's no black and white there. And just being able to apply that lens and that perspective to my practice shifted it so much and, and allowed me to to kind of push things forward so yeah that's a that's a cool idea and like I think a, a lot of people get scared when they think oh, I need to leave this I need to go away from what I know I might never come back it doesn't mean that you can't come back and you can't loop back around to it but it means that you have more opportunity for growth right now and it might be taking a step back, but also you have more growth potential in the future as well when you come back to what it is that you that you love because you have all of these new skill sets and these new ideas and these new kind of neural circuitry and patterns sparking off as you see these, all the crossover that's happening there. Yeah. I think also it's like one of those things that I think people get scared because they're like, oh, you know, if I never come back, but it's... 
you got to also realize that sometimes some things aren't worth fighting for, right? Yeah. And it's like, it sounds, it's, it's the opposite of what everyone's always told. So everyone's like, oh, you know, it's worth fighting for. But I'm like, honestly, like, <laughs> especially in things with sports, I'm like, there's so many of them that there's just not worth it, right? There are bigger fish to fry. Your skill sets are much better off. And I have this conversations with athletes all the time, you know, around selections or funding or their entitlements to things. And it's different for athletes at certain certain levels right because if you don't have a day job you actually do need that funding so you need them to be really clear and tell you you need to run time x to get that funding type things but then from from my perspective my personal perspective it's just like you know if they don't want to fund me and and it's the there's so all the stuff kind of revolved around that stuff it's just not worth my time (laughs) because I've got a day job and I'm actually winning in both areas because I've got a day job so I'm not trying to fight for a very small amount of funding and I'm also getting to go to the world champs and represent New Zealand so it's a win-win and I had an athlete who asked me recently if I you know why you know if I'm going to inquire about the funding situation because I've just changed the funding systems and stuff and I said well no because it's again, it's just one of those things that I was like, it's not, it's just not worth fighting for for me personally. I know it's really, really important and it's a big part of it, but it's just not. And I do think that I probably do have some skills or some ideas or opinions that I could bring into it, but it's not worth it's not worth fighting for. And I think that's one of the scariest things is that people have is realizing that some things aren't worth fighting for. And when you're in sport, not every aspect of it's worth fighting for. Mm. And there's large portions of it that it's always going to be really crap. And they're always going to be bad. And it's always going to be a sense of unfair treatment in sport because it's so unconventional and it's so subjective between, you know, what, how do you determine development? So how do you determine someone who's got talent or who's going to be talented, who's going to make it in the next Olympic cycle. You can't. So there's always going to be that sense of unfairness in certain parts of sports. And that's why I'm always kind of like, it's not, it's actually like, okay to say, cool, this is not worth my time because you get back into that point as well. Like I talked about earlier where you get to this point, you're like, I hate the sport. (laughs) And I'm like, do you hate the sport or do you hate the, politics or the processes or the sense of injustice like those are the types of things but I was like you don't actually hate this one you've got to kind of weigh up where you pick your battles what you choose to real to just like let go and I think when there's a sense of injustice people find that really hard to let go that's quite a big thing that's a big thing that I've noticed and sport from kind of almost being a little bit like of an outsider in a sense now, right? Because when I went away to World Champs and Com Games this year, like I had to go work before I went over there. So I was doing some work in Switzerland before and everyone was at Oceania's and then they came from Oceania's and then they went to their pre-camps and like they're all in the same system doing the same things. But then from my perspective, you know, I'm not on the same thing. So when I come in and I look at it, I'm kind of, I guess I have a different outsider perspective on it now. So... Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that as well. That that gives, I think, me and also hopefully both of the people who are listening to this as well, a lot more kind of insight around what happens in an athletic athletic system. So and like as you were saying that, kind of one of the things that I was thinking as well is like if you leave and you go away and you're worried that you won't come back. Probably if you don't come back, it's because you're doing something better. Yeah. And and I, like, yeah. And people don't I like, it's like, so the biggest question everyone asks me is like, what do you think about the start line? And I'm just like, like, do you get nervous? And I'm like, no, I don't get nervous. Because I was like, it doesn't matter that much. Like, that's <laughs> like, but it's because I know that there's something better. Right. And I was like, I know that my whole sense of value and the person I am is not tied up specifically 
in that moment and that sports thing. And I do understand it's difficult in lots of situations. So I was explaining this to people at work yesterday, actually yesterday, I said to them, like, oh, you know, athletes must make heaps of money and blah, blah, blah. And I said, no. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think I'm here? But then the thing, the way that I explain them is like, there's so much pressure around sport and that's why people don't enjoy it. And that's one thing I learned about in 400 hurdles is that when I used to do heptathlon, there was a sense of community and I moved to four hurdles and it's like, you know, every man for himself is like an understatement. Like no one is friends. No one talks to anyone. But then you realize that their funding, their sponsorship all revolves around making that final. But there's only eight lanes in a final. Mm. And then and they said, oh, yeah, but, you know, they must do well with other parts of so it's fine. I'm like, I don't think you understand. It's like, imagine if you had one off day at work. So imagine if you turned up to work tomorrow and you're just like, eh, that was a bad day. And then never got paid for the whole year. And I was like, that's how a lot of their funding works for a lot of people. So they don't perform well at a world champs. And that's not just in New Zealand. And New Zealand's a little bit more lenient, you know, they're a little bit more supportive than that. But I know for, for a fact, some of those girls overseas, they didn't make the final call. They're not going to get funded for a whole year. But then that means that basically they had one off day and then your work just be like, mm, I know you've been working all year towards this and you haven't taken a day off and you've done overtime, but you had a bad day on that day at that time. So we won't give you any salary this year. So there is heaps of pressure around of heaps of them and I do get that. But then, like I said, from my perspective, I'm kind of just like, oh, a little bit more easygoing. Yeah. <laughs> and it makes it more enjoyable. Is that how you've always felt about athletics? Or is this something that you've kind of a mindset that you've evolved to? I've definitely been way more relaxed than a lot of other athletes. I think I think it's always been just my mindset. I think it's because one thing is that I've never been afraid that that's it. Yeah. I was just like, I'm, without being arrogant, I'm good at lots of things, right? I was like, it doesn't matter. I was like, if I'm not going to be that good at this, it doesn't matter. The fact that I don't even, that I'm, not training full-time and I can get here well imagine if I put the amount of full-time training into something else like that's kind of always been my mindset yeah but there's been times like where I guess I was probably more focused on it definitely but I think I learned really really quickly I think in 2016 and I got quite a bad injury that I realized as well I was like it's gonna sound real doom and gloom but sports is like a dead end Right. So no matter how good you are and no matter how well you do, there is a point where it just comes to an abrupt end, especially, particularly in individual sports, such as like, you know, athletics. No one, you might become, yes, you could integrate and become a coach, but you as an athlete and as a career that doesn't build into anything else, it just comes to a dead stop and people don't necessarily you don't have the same you don't necessarily have the same opportunity right after after you get to the end of sport it's just yeah whereas if if you were in an organization in a normal business you'd actually keep developing you'd do you know you would get to your 50s and you might be like cool I'm gonna start my own business now or I'm gonna do this like there's always something new to come and I think it's one of the things with sports was like there is sometimes there is nothing after. And I think that's what kind of really why athletics and sports means so much to a lot of people. And there is so much pressure because there is not, there's not a lot, you know, the, the whole kind of ID is probably wrapped around it as well. That sounds super, super negative, eh? <laughs> no, <laughs> super no, negative. no, not, a, not at all. Like, like, uh, the it's a really interesting example from a like a sporting perspective and like it's it's probably not an area that i've thought massively about but like so much of our identities are wrapped up in what we do and like especially i guess from a sporting perspective is that you do have a finite end point to that and you don't know when that is either like you're like i'm probably still not going to be going this hard when i'm 45 but like 
you might get injured, something else might happen. There is, there's so much uncertainty around that and around that part of your identity that there is, that you don't get similarly in a, in another professional environment. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it's negative as such. It's probably reasonably realistic about kind of how it is. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things that I said to one of the older guys in our office, so he's nearly retiring, and I said to him, because I'm 29, I said to him, imagine if you got to like 29 and everyone was just like, oh, that's when you retire soon. <laughs> and then you think, good God, like he's, he's 65 and he's thinking, I don't want to retire, what am I going to do? And I was like, imagine being like 30 or 35 or even 40 and being like, okay, I'm retired. I'm retiring. What do you do? Like, and I was like, that's a sense for a lot of athletes. Right. And I think that's why there's quite a lot of stress around. And that's why I say it's a dead end and such, because it's like, you can go on and do something else. And I actually saw a really interesting post from Sally Pierce in the hundred meter herder on LinkedIn, not that long ago. And it just made me extremely thankful that it kind of made me think of what I've got, but also made me re- made, made me realize it's like, you know, she's Olympic champion, world record holder, Olympic record holder, and 100-meter hurdles, like amazing CV. And she was on LinkedIn. She, I don't know how old she is. She might be 36. Like literally asking people to help her find a job because she didn't know what was next. And you think wow, she did the most decorated Olympic career and stuff in the world. And then I thought about it. I was like, she was in my office and just a normal person in a context of normal life. And she's 30, like, you know, I don't know how old she is, but I'm assuming she's around. She, I don't think she's 40 yet, but she, she's asking, like reaching out publicly to everybody to be like, hey guys, I really need help with this. It kind of makes you realize as well. It's like, yeah, even for people at that level and have that much talent in a, have been that successful it's there is that definite end as well so it was quite interesting and a little bit of an eye-opener I think as well yeah I've just googled her she's 35 oh now that yeah. yeah and I was like but isn't it like that perspective mm. is quite scary right can you imagine this being like 35 and be like cool so I finished my career and now I don't know what I'm doing somebody help me she didn't she did it much more like elegant than that yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> shouldn't have sent out an SOS like that, but yeah 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 it's it's interesting and I've always I've, people have always kind of told me like especially sort of older people as they're going moving towards retirement they're like you've got to have something re- to retire to as you're coming out of your business career you can't just they're like you can't just go and sit on your porch and just kind of watch the world pass by because then you're just going to die you need to have some something meaningful and and I guess it's probably similar to in athletics as well as or in sport is like I've, I need to have something to retire to I need to have that that next step and but yeah it's it's challenging I I mean, we could talk on this, I guess, probably for another couple of hours around kind of the transition. But one thing you said right at the start that was really interesting that kind of roll we rolled over, but was that you don't you don't value yourself as an athlete for your competitiveness. I'm really interested in what do you value yourself as an athlete? Or how do you value yourself as a person? Like what do you think is is cool about you? I don't know if anyone's ever asked me what's cool about me. I think yeah, I think the thing that I value is probably is again, it's probably easier for me to explain it this way. So I always think about things like if you if you think about an athlete, so about who can give back more to a community, who can be, I guess, if you want to say a better citizen of society. And this is not saying anything against gold medalists, right? But you think about someone who's puts all their time and effort into becoming a gold medalist. So they're often insanely focused on them, insanely focused only on them. And that's why they sometimes do struggle to find something post-sport, right? Because they don't even think that far. They're only thinking about what they need to do right now, right here. Whereas if you compare that to, and then you think about the reach that they have in terms of 
the wider community and then you compare that to someone like say, a school teacher and then you think about a school teacher attending an olympics and you imagine cool they're putting some they're putting some stuff into themselves to become a better athlete to make the olympics but then you think about how much they're actually like how their skills are affecting people around them they're having a hundred percent they're having significantly bigger input touch kind of on the community and the people around them than that gold medalist because just because they have that wider balance it's a really weird way to explain it but in my mind there's a sense of that I don't I pride myself on not winning right because I'm like you're I guess I'm, I'm able to actually have more impact and input into life in so many more areas so you can make so multiple generations and multiple areas a lot better and you can make things better and you can improve things and you can create a more embedded kind of like legacy rather than just being that athlete that was really good at that one thing yeah so it doesn't really answer the question but it kind of just works through the thought process, I guess. Yeah, that's cool though. That's cool. My my next question was, depending on if you hadn't given that answer, was like, do those values like transpose into the other areas of your life? But I guess they they obviously do because that's what it's all about. I, I, yeah. It sounds like it's, I guess, kind of thinking about like just a life well lived yeah. really is that I – I'm good at this, but I'm good at this as well. And I put some energy into each and that kind of, that spreads out. Like what we were talking about, I guess, with everyone bringing their own expertise is kind of sharing that that expertise and sharing yourself across many different, many different levels so that you can, you can touch more people and improve more areas of life. Yeah. I guess I'd put it like this though as well. Like I would probably think about it as if being competitive was going to have like a huge rippling effect. For example, if I was going to develop some amazing business that was going to have a huge rippling effect, then good God, I would be insanely competitive. But then the reason that I said that I'm just like, eh, I don't consider myself or value myself as a competitive athletics in my specific sport is because I'm like, me being competitive in athletics means jackal, right? I was like, it doesn't really, like I said, everybody's competitive, but I can guarantee you that all those people being competitive in that race, I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't change anything, right? There's no, they're not improving anything. They're not creating some, I don't know, they're not making hospitals. They're not, there is no. They might sell some more shoes. Yeah, exactly. Sell some shoes, but I'm like, there's no, there's no, nothing comes of that in that situation. It doesn't go to say that I'm not competitive, I guess, at all, but I would just be like, where would I value that competitiveness? Yeah. 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 Cool. Portia, I'm really enjoying having a chat with you, but I want to ask you some questions that I ask everyone towards the end of the conversation. The first one is, do you have any strategies that you use to approach uncomfortable situations? Do I have strategies? I have things that I tell so I've got a sister who's a teenage sister she's 17 now and I always tell her that you're never too cool to try because when you're 17 you're too cool to try yeah because trying is too and yeah you're too cool to try so I was like that's kind of like my motto you're never too I always do that I'm just like you're never too cool to try which kind of forces you to try right and I'm like Mm. in terms of being uncomfortable the first thing is actually trying so it's like that first step and I, the one thing I always say to people, especially, I think a lot of girls have this problem. I was like, everybody is just as uncomfortable as you are, right? But I'm like, everybody is. So you go into a room and I was like, like I've been in the conferences and you go into a conference and I can guarantee you everybody in there feels like they shouldn't be there. And I was like, no, I even want to be there. And I've been working in this industry for 20 years and they still feel uncomfortable so my strategies yeah like I said it's like you never you know no it's too cool to try everyone's got to try because that's the first starting point and then after that it's just recognizing that everybody's uncomfortable and if you can the biggest thing is that if you can ride through that uncomfortable you will actually come out the other side so much better off I'm a massive believer that I 
told my little sister she was going to play netball for the first time this year. And she absolutely lost it when my mum signed her up for Prem's netball. She's never played netball before. And she said, oh, mum, you know, that's just socially, that's so awkward. I don't know the girls. And everyone's going to be like, oh, who's this girl coming in thinking she's playing Prem's netball? She's never played and she didn't want to go to trials. And I remember telling her as well, it's like, everyone feels uncomfortable. You just got to keep going, keep going. Anyway, she made the team the Prem's team and then I asked her I asked her a couple of weeks ago so I'll help us finish it oh yeah we're great friends and stuff and I was just like see you never once you work through that like you're fine like you're she's so much better off she made the team all those things all those feelings do they do go away and I think it's just kind of recognizing that cool they are going to be uncomfortable I mean there was a, a very little very small sense of uncomfortableness when I went back to work after three months because I'd been in the office, right? And I was just like, oh, I'm not even going to know some people in the office probably. We've got a new CEO. And I was like, I used to know the old CEO really well. We've got a new one and she's going to be like, who the heck are you? Why haven't you been at work for three months? Like type of thing. But the same thing. It's just that exact same concept. I'm like, "Eh, it'll pass eventually. And then if it doesn't, I guess you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Go find something better. Portia, how do you how do you build your capacity to do hard things? By doing slightly less harder things. Yeah. Great <laughs> um, answer. Yeah. No, I think building your capacity to do hard things, it comes from continuing to do things when you've had the worst failures and the most uncomfortable failures. So for me, there's two different sets of failures. Sports failures are never uncomfortable to me, right? And I was like, it's and I think it's just around that my mindset around sports is always like we've kind of talked about. It. It's not super, it is competitive, but not really. And it's not a, it's just something I really enjoy. But building capacity in failures that are uncomfortable is hard. It's failures and things like when you write, you know, I've done writings at work, I've written papers at work before, and someone's turned around and be like, that's really crap. <laughs> and you're just like, okay. So how am I going to, like, you know, or how am I going to get from this of actually having a huge failure at work in front of multiple people, in front of a boss that I'm going to have to continue to hand work to who already thinks that I'm really crap at this job. Or another one is at, like, university. Like, when I first started, when I first started, I actually decided to go back to do law at university, right? So I never originally did it, then I came back to do it. And I hadn't studied for two years. And the first year, the very first paper that I went through was just the worst. I'd kind of forgotten how to like how to be in university. I was starting topics that I didn't know. And I remember just not, I, I didn't even, in hindsight, it wasn't even that bad, but it felt like I'd absolutely failed and I wasn't going to be able to make it through. And it's like at those points where you, feel that the failures that are connected to kind of your, your inner self, who you are as a person, when you start to work through those and see those through, they help you actually go ahead and challenge yourself to be uncomfortable, larger situations, right? So all those small failures mean that, you know, I go to things like I go to an international conference. I'm like, eh, people are going to, people are going to love me. <laughs> But it's because I've been through so all those really small ones that felt really personal, right? And yeah, I guess that's how I explain it is like when you work through being uncomfortable and failures that feel very personal, they kind of help build up that sense of resilience, I guess. Yeah. Nice. And are there other ways that you look after your health? Sport. I'm a massive balance, right? A person in life who has to do multiple things. And I think this is the thing that drives people, especially my coaches and stuff, drives them crazy that I don't just put 150% into sport. But a lot of that actually is to do with my own kind of well-being, because because like I, you know, lots of them don't necessarily know that I don't fully value myself as being an athlete so if I put all my eggs in that one basket it is just the worst thing for my mental health because I feel like I'm falling behind in life I feel like I'm becoming stagnant the progresses that I want to make aren't necessarily just and within the silo of sports so yeah so I always try to make sure that I do something that's like 
sports related, obviously work related, and then and then always trying to have that at least at least one thing where you have impact on someone else's life in a positive way. Because I think even if everything's really shit, if you're making someone else's life slightly better, then it doesn't actually matter how bad work's going, how bad you're running. Because, and again, that's why I said like, that's part of why I enjoy the group that I run with and relationship with the coach. It's because me and my coach can work together to make other people, other athletes' lives better which just means if I'm running pretty average, it doesn't matter too much. It does matter, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. No, that's that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. If people are interested in kind of following along with what you do or, or kind of knowing a little bit more about you, is there a way that they can connect with you? Just like we did on LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, or on social media, on like Instagram and stuff as well, I guess. Cool. Again, no one's ever asked me that. Where can people find you? (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Portia, thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with us today. I always love these conversations. If you want to have a, hear a guest, if you want to have a topic explored, if you want to ask a question, please send an email to chris at healthmentors.nz uh, and we can get onto that for you. If you want to support the show, the best way that you can do that is subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure to share it out with some of your mates as well. Thank you to Health Mentors, the sponsor of the show today. If you want to improve your health and your performance in the middle of a chaotic world, make sure to check out healthmentors.nz or send an email to chris at healthmentors.nz for a no-obligation chat. Thank you so much to my brother Jeremy Desmond for the amazing theme music to the show. And thank you to you guys for tuning in and listening all the way to the end. We'll see you all again next week.